struggling to find my unmute button. We've done podcasts, so many episodes of podcasts, and yet sometimes I just can't work Zoom. Apparently, there is a button on Zoom you can click to rotate your picture. Okay, I feel better now, though, because now my chaotic entrance. <laughs> so there you go. I, I guess I clicked accidentally. Oh, it's a Monday. Monday. Wow. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Slavic Connection. My name is Taylor Ham, and I'm joined by my co-host, the illustrious Lara Taropin. We've got an exciting guest today, Dr. Emma Ashford, to discuss her new book, Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. Dr. Ashford is currently a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. Before this, she was a fellow at the New American Engagement Initiative at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. She was a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point and an adjunct assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She's also a column writer for foreign policy and a mother and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So just an all around superwoman. That does sound pretty impressive. I haven't slept in like five years. So, listeners, I hope you enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks, Michelle. So, Dr. Ashford, welcome to the Slavic Connection. We're happy to have you. Well, well great. Thanks so much for, for having me. I noticed in the beginning of your book, you said this was a, a journey, that this was a process to bring this book to fruition. I guess let's start with what that journey looked like. You said that you would put it down, had to redraft it. Why did you feel that it was so important to finish this book and get it out for policymakers and the general public? Yeah, well, so actually, I'm not sure I can take credit for that. It's actually the people around me. I had some wonderful mentors. So I basically, I I came out of my PhD, I did a postdoc, and then I basically stayed in the policy space working at a think tank. And one of the things you find there is that there's a lot of demands on your time in the policy space. There's not always the time to actually work on turning your dissertation into a book, and it just kept getting pushed off. And so I was very lucky that I had some mentors, my boss at the time, Chris Preble, Trevor Thrall, who's a professor over at George Mason, who really encouraged me to keep working on it and and push to get it out because they thought that it was they thought that it was relevant for policy and they thought it was something that I actually should do to publish policy relevant research to show in DC that you don't just have to write op-eds, you know, that you can still do research. And so I, I appreciated that so much. And I think, you know, they've been proven somewhat right because I released, the book ended up being released in June of this year. And it's a lot about, you know, how oil impacts foreign policy in states like Russia. I started out as a Russia specialist. And so, you know, it, it ended up being extremely relevant to current events. So I'm very glad it made it out into the world. Yeah, we'll get to diving deep into the Russia case study in just a little bit. But I wanted to give our listeners a little bit of the framework that you introduce um, at the beginning. And really, honestly, you blew my mind in a good way of thinking about petrostates and how oil impacts foreign policy. Because we do, I say we, foreign policy in the United States and how it's normally taught to students, these petrostates are treated as a monolith almost. And that foreign policy, it's almost like a a one size fits all for all of these various states. And so your framework divides these states into four separate categories. And I wanted you to introduce those categories for our listeners so that we can all have a baseline for the language that you use and the definitions that you started to, to build in this book. Yeah. So it's, it's funny, you know, there's kind of been a little boom 
in IR books dealing with oil over the last 10 years. But when I started my dissertation, there was there was basically nothing out there. And even the first book on this, which was Jeff Colgan's book, really dealt with a subset of oil states. So, so he only cares about petrostates, that's states that produce a lot of oil that are very corrupt and they're revolutionary in their governance. So that's like a, a pretty small subset of states. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book is talk about how we may understand you know, the scope of the ways that states interact with oil, because it, it does differ, right? And you know, I'd say the most common question I got while working on my dissertation while writing this book was, oh, but America's a petro-state, right? So it's, it's not all bad. And, and the answer really is that there's different ways states can interact with oil. If you just think about it logically, right, some states are very wealthy, because of their oil. And, and in the book, I think I just call them oil wealthy states. You know, So on a per capita basis, they just earn a bunch of money from oil. And that's kind of where the US is right now, actually. Some states are really oil dependent. And for anyone that's gone into the comparative literature, uh, the comparative politics literature on the resource curse, you know, you know what I'm talking about. That some states produce so much oil that it basically dominates their economy, their polity, can make them more autocratic, can make them more corrupt, all, all of these things. You know, there's even some civil war literature on this. And so for some states, that's that's their relationship with oil. And then some states just don't have either of those. You know, some states just produce a fair amount of oil and that gives them, you know, some market power, perhaps, or it boosts their overall economy. Maybe it makes them important in the world if they export a lot of that oil, right? So perhaps if you're a big global exporter, you know, you are important in the world because of it, like the Saudis or the Qataris or the Emiratis, right? But those are all different ways of interacting with oil. And what that means is that I think you can't just pigeonhole petrostates as one thing. Petrostates aren't just a corrupt Middle Eastern dictatorship that earns a lot of money from its oil and has no governance institutions. Not all petrostates are like that. So I think understanding that variety is the first step to thinking about how oil and foreign policy interact. For the Russian case, you highlight in your book that Russia actually falls into all four of these categories. So not only are they oil dependent, they're oil wealthy, they're super producers, and they're also super exporters. And so you talk about the links to foreign policy and how each of these categories can change the pathologies within foreign policy of how states like Russia interact within the international world. And so I think it'd be really important to provide a little bit of context, maybe for how Russia got to where it is today. Also, we see currently the weaponization of natural gas through the war in Ukraine and things like that. But I think starting maybe in the Soviet Union and talking about the gas infrastructure of how Russia is able to use natural gas and oil within its foreign policy would be a good starting point for our listeners to have some context. One of the things that I, I kind of found frustrating about the existing literature when I started working on this is it very much pigeonholed Russia as just, well, there's Russia, but it's unique and it's off to the side. And we find that a lot in political economy studies, I think, in IR, that people just either they write a Russia-specific study that goes back into the Soviet era and, you know, it's just Russia, or they sort of just say, well, you know, the ways we understand political economy, they're not applicable to the former Soviet Union countries because that was just so different. 
And I think that has in, informed a lot of the writing on how Russia, sort of how Russian oil and gas production, you know, shapes its foreign policy today. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I tried to do here and I really wanted to do was get at how some of the peculiarities of sort of the post-Soviet economy ends up shaping some of the problems that we're seeing today. And I guess, you know, I'll highlight just a couple of, of them. So one is, we can, we can talk more about this, you know, the, the Russian state, partly due to, you know, the, the failures of Soviet political economy, partly due to the, the corruption in the 1990s, the failures of privatization, the Russian economy ends up being incredibly resource dependent. But it also ends up being, you know, incredibly important for the world. The scale and scope of Russian exports is really quite massive. And so, you know, Russian oil and gas matter hugely to the world. And those revenues matter massively to the Russian state. So there's a case study in the book. We can get into a little further if you're interested on, you know, what Russia did with that money in terms of military expenditure. And it's funny, this was written long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I put a, sort of a little footnote in there that says, you know, but maybe that doesn't necessarily mean it'll have huge military capacity, that the capabilities will be used wisely. And I, I think we've seen, right, you know, money can't buy you efficiency. Money can't buy you capabilities. So that's that's one aspect in, in the Russian case. And the other one which you alluded to is when you come to questions of energy security, the post-Soviet space is unique and really challenging. So countries, when they make decisions about energy security, particularly about building things like pipelines that have security implications, they worry a lot about where those go. And so one of the examples I like to give is the Japanese and the Russians haggled for like two decades over the ESPO pipeline. Would it go through Chinese territory at all? on its way going east? Or would it hug the, the border and go only through Russian territory? And at the end of the day, the deal they came to was that that pipeline would go only through Russian territory and there would be a little spur line into China because the Japanese were so worried about Chinese ability to impede the pipeline. In the post-Soviet space, those decisions weren't made with security in mind because all of the states at the time many of the pipelines were built they assumed that the USSR would remain one entity, that the Warsaw Pact would remain linked to, to the Soviet Union. And so where we see pipeline decisions made, you know, all of the pipelines flow up through Russia and across into Ukraine. It gives Russia, in many ways, a monopsony over Central Asian gas in the immediate post-Soviet period. They're the only country that can buy it. And so those countries have to deal with low prices. And it gives Russia this monopoly power over a lot of the lines that flow into Europe, but particularly into Ukraine. And so the post-Soviet space is really interesting and unique in that security was delinked from economics when the pipelines were set up. And it's taking 30 or 40 years to rectify that problem. I find it interesting. So there was a lot of discussion about the Nord, even again, prior to the war. And now there's a separate conversation about the sabotage, the explosion that occurred to it. But prior to that, there was a lot of discussion of Russia using these pipelines as leverage to punish Ukraine, to punish Germany. They were going to cut off gas, leave them cold for the winter. But you note in your book, and that was, this is a very interesting perspective that I guess never occurred to me, is that this is a one or two time use weapon. 
you use it once and your your credibility is just damaged beyond repair. You're not trusted anymore. You you almost sabotage yourself in a way by doing something like this. And I guess that that was sort of it's something that was definitely, I think, on people's minds this this past couple of months. It's like, was Russia going to pull that stop? And we did see it a little bit. They sort of didn't turn on the gas for a little bit, but then it did start flowing again. But now there are questions going into winter again of is this going to be an issue cropping up? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, the, the idea of the oil weapon or the gas weapon is kind of a one a one shot use. I think it, it reinforces the idea that, that using energy as a weapon in this way is actually quite similar to a lot of sanctions in terms of its use of economic statecraft, which is to say, you know, you might get a lot of leverage out of it, but countries will figure out ways to work around it and insulate themselves in the future. So I have cases of, of the Russia-Ukraine gas disputes in the book, but I also have the, the 1973 oil embargo. And what you see after that one is, again, countries taking steps to insulate themselves, and they can't cut themselves off from all Middle Eastern oil, but they can set up like strategic petroleum reserves. They built the IEA. And so, you know, once I think states cross a threshold of using their oil or gas to punish another state too severely, you know, you do see this backlash and states try and, and mitigate those risks in the future. The, the cases where it didn't really happen, and I think is what we've seen more in Europe in the last sort of 15 years, is these, these price disputes. And, and I'm saying price disputes because even if there were geopolitical linkages, like in the case of the, the Ukraine dispute, they were very much about pricing, right? Moscow saying to Kiev, well, okay, if your government's not friendly to us, we're not selling you subsidized gas anymore. And so there are disputes over prices. And we see it in Moldova, we see it in Belarus, we see it basically all over the post-Soviet space. That doesn't prompt as much attempt to shift away from Russian gas as you might think. Um, and to the extent that it does actually, Nord Stream, you know, Nord Stream 2, it's mostly the Germans and others trying to find a way to free themselves not from Russian gas, but trying to free themselves from price disputes, right? So they don't want the Ukrainians or the Belarusians getting in a fight with Moscow over prices that has downstream effects on them. They're just trying to root around and have a reliable supplier relationship directly with Moscow. So, I mean, I guess I think the bottom line is these, these problems of energy dependence, they're a lot more nuanced and I think a lot of people give them credit for. It really isn't all about the Kremlin trying to use its energy as a weapon. And that relationship runs both ways. So, you know, for me, the most notable thing I think about the current crisis is it was Europe that pulled the plug. As you say, the Russians dialed down some supplies. They didn't start up others. But it really was Europe that pulled the plug at the end of the day that decided it was too big a risk and that they were going to switch away from Russian gas. So all of this, I think, just suggests that limited utility of the oil weapon. I mean, even in this huge energy crisis, limited utility, limited future prospects. So with that idea in mind for, for U.S. policymakers, how do, I guess, more of your opinion, how would we shift the conversation in the United States to looking at it as Russia is using this as a weapon to building more robust policies that might address the energy security crisis in Europe or with some of our allies? What do you think are some of the steps that we could take to, to either help address this or do we, or is it even our prerogative or is it our responsibility to step in here? You know, I mean, I think the US is already doing a fair amount in terms of trying to mitigate this as much as we can, but there are simply physical limits. 
I think the lesson that policymakers should take from this and apply going forward is that diversity is a strength in this context. And this doesn't just apply in energy. This applies if we're talking about advanced computer chips. This applies if we're talking about um, supply chains. You know, we've all seen over the last few years, everything from COVID to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If your supply of some vital good comes from one place, it's liable to get shut off. It's liable to be used as leverage. If you build those connections with a variety of states, you're in a much better security place. And that was the mistake that Europe made. It wasn't buying Russian gas. It was continuing to be excessively dependent on Russian gas at the expense of other sources, right? They'd be in a much better place now if they had a few more LNG terminals, if they had some pipelines out to Algeria. You know, the diversity of supply is the thing that's really important. kind of want to pivot to a more general question. Again, at the start of your book, you mentioned that it's generally agreed upon that oil wealthy states seem more prone to start wars than other countries. I, I guess my question is oriented more towards this question about wealth. They, you have these states with a lot of oil. How does this wealth change a state's behavior in a way that steers them maybe differently from the oil dependent states? How does it make them more aggressive? Because you know, you know, sometimes they use this wealth to sponsor terrorism, but other times they do use it for diplomatic efforts. So what what is the effect of this oil wealth? It's a really good question. And, and I actually should just in, in the name of honesty, right? The original question in the dissertation was why do oil rich states start more wars? And in the book, I sort of back away from that question because while I think, you know, I find this very strong correlation between oil wealth and conflict and between other forms of sort of, you know, oil production, oil dependence and conflict. I think the mechanisms are less clear than than perhaps I would like to admit, or perhaps you know a lot of further work is going to be needed to figure that out. So in the book, I I guess I propose a few explanations that I think hold some water. One of them is you know the resource curse. So it's not as much about wealth as it is about how much that oil money dominates a society and its institutions. And I, I basically make an argument that I think I think is supported by findings in sort of institutional literature. You know, the idea that if a state has really weak institutions in general, it's not going to have strong foreign policy institutions. And again, we know from various other studies that decisions made by leaders who have poor intelligence, poor advising, small circle of personalistic, you know, advisors surrounding a dictator, you make poorer decisions. And so I think conflict becomes more likely in those cases. And so that's that's sort of one potential way that oil could undermine foreign policy decision making. And then the other one I think is really just <laughs> at the simplest level, right, means and motive are what detectives usually talk about when they talk about a, who might have committed a crime. And oil-rich states have the means. That wealth lets you build up your military capacity you know, relative to your neighbours. It makes it much easier for you, as you say, to, to engage in sort of proxy conflicts. And so whether it's a proxy conflict that escalates and suddenly you're involved militarily, or whether it's a leader who looks at his fabulous military and says, you know, we will absolutely smash the Ukrainians in three days and take Kiev because our military is so great and that's a misperception. I think we can all kind of see how you get from that military buildup to war. And, and so I think, you know, 
there's a lot more work that needs to be done on these linkages, but I am pretty confident that there is something there. And I think, you know, the Russian case this year really sort of highlights that, that this does happen. Yeah, I would like to dive into the Russian case in regards to how this oil wealth fueled uh, military expenditures, even a revolution within the military. So starting back in the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we have this massive corruption and privatization of the Russian economy. We have we we see these state owned enterprises start to spring up. And then we have the oil boom. After the 90s, we have the Russian state start to increase its budget revenues and be able to spend more money on its military. And with that comes reformation. It comes a professionalized officer service, military expenditures, R&D, various things to make the military seem very strong within the Russian Federation. Could you speak a little about how authoritarian regimes prioritizing military expenditures and what that impact may have on foreign policy and then specifically in the Russian case? So I think the Russian case is is just really interesting here because, you know, I mean, there are existing institutions, there are, there is an existing military, right? But, But after, you know, in the 1990s, we're not really talking about a strong structure there in in Russia in terms of what the military can do, in terms of what the institution itself is not particularly strong. And we see it languishes throughout the 1990s. As the oil revenues start to tick up in 2000s, we start to see policymakers, they spend a bunch of money in the military in, in the 2000s. But when we get to the 2008 Georgia war, the military does not perform as well as policymakers had thought. And so there's this effort made over sort of, again, the next decade from there to not just spend a whole bunch of the military on the military, but in theory to try and deal with the corruption problems, the graft um, that has undermined previous attempts to, to build up the military. And again, I think this doesn't come up in the book because the book was written beforehand. But I think today we can look back and say that, you know, despite the political impetus, they, they never did manage to overcome those, those graft and corruption problems. And so that is sort of the, the story of Russian military modernization. But it's, it's, I think, really interesting how they took all this money and they poured it into a variety of sort of weapon systems. They switched from the conscript force over to a much more professionalized military, dramatically increased pay. And all of this with the aim of improving the force's ability to actually perform in the field. And I think, you know, again, we can say now, I think the assumption among senior policymakers was that this Russian military was far more capable. I mean, we definitely know the assumption among Russian military watchers here in the States, in the US government, in Europe, they all assumed this military was more capable. But what we have seen, I think, again, is the limits of what your money can do in terms of actual coherent reform. Did that quite answer that question? I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah, no, I think it does. I think that Russia was, like you said, overconfident in its ability, uh, in its military's ability to perform. I think that it was, I think, the, the phrase paper tiger of where it seemed very strong on paper. We'd seen all of this money thrown at the military. We see these sophisticated weapon systems and we see all of this bluster around the Russian military and, and people seriously considering its, 
its ability to confront NATO um, in that in that part of the world. And, and we started to get very concerned. But then I think as the war in Ukraine has pro- progressed, we've seen that the the corruption and, and the I guess just the rot from the inside just doesn't necessarily equate to the military power that they wanted to convey. And, you know, if you just forgive me a digression out of Russia, you know, it's notable, I think, how much the Russian experience in the last year or so, eight months, I guess, has mirrored the experience of some other petrostates. The one that just keeps coming to mind every time I see some some new development in this case is Saddam Hussein and, and his military in Iraq. It suffered almost identical problems. Everybody thought that it was an extremely strong, well-trained military, and it collapsed, both in 1991 and later in 2003. The Libyan military, similar story under, under Muammar Gaddafi. And so, again, I'm not saying this is necessarily determinative, but there does seem to be this commonality that, you know, petrostates have all this money, but the in- existing institutional problems make the military uh, questionable. I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting to also just interject because there's this idea that if you're sitting on all of this wealth, there's a lot of guarantees, very positive guarantees. And this pushes back on that. You can have all the money that you want. You can have this rich reserve of oil, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to start winning wars anytime soon. I guess like similarly, like what what are some like aspects? Yeah, that would continue to like motivate all of these states and Russia even to continue to maintain its status as the super producer state, super producer exporter. So it's really, I think, an interesting question because the again, we we sort of assume there's this perception of, I think, petrostates as, you know, nefarious, right? And and many of them are. They're really genuinely awful states led by horrible people in many cases. But they do more with the wealth than just invade other countries, right? So some of it is is proxies, right? We mentioned that a little earlier. Petrostates sponsor proxies, violent and nonviolent, right? So it might just be a political party, not it doesn't have to be a violent rebellion. But they sponsor proxies at a rate that's more similar to that of the great powers than to comparable non-great power states. They also engage in a lot of sort of charitable and aid contributions, or they sometimes use their wealth in really innovative ways. And one of one of the cases I really like because I think it, it really exemplifies how a petrostate can smartly use its wealth is Qatar, which has, you know, was long an oil exporting state, but has really become this just gas superpower. Qatar, you know, uses a lot of its wealth for aid, but it also spent a lot of time building up a reputation as a a negotiation hub, right? So these are the people that will help you bring together factions in a civil war, host them in Doha, mediate between them, um, and try and find a solution. Now that the solutions don't always stick, but the Qataris have built themselves a profile doing that. And then they've also used their money not to build themselves a military because the country's so small, they couldn't you know, build anything worth having. But what they have done is build excellent ties with Western countries through weapons transfers, through support to major cultural institutions like the Louvre. And then they basically pay to host a large US military base on their soil. And through all of this, what they've done is effectively buy themselves Western protection in in a way not dissimilar, I think, to the Saudis managed to do it in the 1980s, the Kuwaitis in the 1990s. But if you're a small petrostate, it might be that the most effective way to actually achieve your goals is to insinuate yourself into kind of the global club using your wealth and then benefit from that. 
mean, that dovetails nicely into, I had a question also about soft power, using oil and, and gas for soft power. It's something we associate with international exchange programs and, and rock music and cultural aspects of it, but there is a way to use this wealth that isn't necessarily ag- aggressive, which is, which is very interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think I talk about it in the book, but there's, you know, the, the Qataris again, like they, they do some really fun things. Like they, they have this giant art museum that's an outpost of a famous art gallery. It was designed by uh, IMP, the famous architect. They had like Victoria Beckham come and open it. There's a lot of things you can do with money to build cachet, you know, and when you tie that up with, you know, then these states get invited to the G20, they get given a bigger voice at the UN on more committees because they contribute more. And so, you know, you can leverage that wealth into some really interesting things. And from from our point of view, as sort of as Americans or as Europeans looking at it, you might want to be asking yourself whether that's necessarily good for, for US national security in some cases. question about probably not fun behavior from another petro state. The Saudis and and their recent manipulation of the oil markets, and especially given the U.S.'s close relationship between weapons transfers and weapons exporting to the Saudis, defense, uh, defense agreements and things like that, the recent behavior... Could you explain a little bit and maybe provide some insight for our listeners of why the Saudis all of a sudden are pivoting away from the U.S. in regards to oil production and trying to manipulate the gas prices within the United States or even around the world and maybe try to explain their behavior just a little bit? Sure. So there are sort of two problems with this discussion. Well, actually, there's three. One is that Americans call petroleum gas and it's not natural gas. So that, that's a separate problem with, with the nomenclature. But there's, there's I guess, two, two big things to, to be aware of. One is that the Saudis never really actually listened to the US on oil prices all that often. There were some edge cases, like during the war in Afghanistan or during the US war in Vietnam, where the Saudis you know, restocked US tankers secretly. There have been cases where the Saudis helped the US during the Cold War, where they felt their interests were were at stake. During the Gulf War, for example, they pumped more to keep the price down, right? So, But that's usually cases where Saudi interests and US interests went together. Otherwise, they don't typically listen to the US much when when making production decisions. So that's, that's sort of one bit. But the second part is there is a genuine pivot away. The Saudis are moving away from the US in economic terms and have been for years. America is now the world's biggest producer of oil and natural gas, thanks to the fracking revolution. And we no longer really import much Middle Eastern oil at all. A little bit, but not much. Our allies in Europe still import some, but again, less than it used to be. Most oil from Saudi Arabia and the Middle East in general now goes east to Asia. And the biggest consumers are China and Japan and South Korea and some others. But what this means is that the Saudis are building increasingly strong economic ties with the Chinese, increasingly strong economic ties with Russia through the OPEC plus agreement, which allows the Saudis to keep some control of global oil prices in agreement with Russia. And that economic ties with the US are basically just based on weapons at this point. So the Saudis, we're in this very strange situation where the Saudis are still heavily dependent on the US for security. And the U.S. still thinks of this as primarily a security 
agreement or an arrangement. But in economic terms, there's not a lot of good reasons for it anymore. So this is not something new. This is something that's been happening for 20 years. But I think the divergences are now becoming more visible. We're, we're facing this interesting future where technology fracking is changing the landscape. Experts have been mentioning that we've reached peak oil demand. Effectively, you know, from here on out, we're going to be seeing a decline in oil demand. And, you know, with threats of, say, using oil and gas as leverage, there has been more pushes for a green transition using more green energy. So from your perspective, what, what does the future of oil states look like? The interesting thing, I think, about the current crisis is that we've moved from a space where it was just people like me, you know, boating energy folks talking about, you know, the speed of green transition, the balance of gas and nuclear and, you know, renewable technologies. And we moved into the space where suddenly it's this incredibly urgent problem and Europe is having a literal what do we do tomorrow debate. And the big problem is, of course, it's come too soon because you can't transition to renewables in this green way as fast as I think Europe would have to do to meet its energy needs over the next few years. But what we've also seen is that because of this, petrostates still hold a lot of power because you know they, they can dial production up and down in times of crisis. And they're going to control that level of power until they basically don't have much power at all anymore. And what I mean by that is right now where markets are really volatile and there's this ongoing transition and things are very chaotic, there's still going to be a necessity to turn to petrostates at times of crisis to produce more, to meet global demands. But eventually, as this transition proceeds, and if we are successful, particularly in the West, in transitioning off fossil fuels and to more renewables, we will eventually reach a situation where we're not nearly as reliant on petrostates. Some countries will be. Some countries transition much slower. So countries in you know, Southeast Asia, for example, have had to go back onto coal in the current crisis. They'll still be dependent on petrostates. But for the petrostates themselves, what this means is you know, they're looking at this period of potentially larger profits over the next couple of decades and then a crash. The, the Saudis or Emiratis, those countries that have really low production costs, they're going to be able to continue supplying sort of other buyers for an indefinite period of time, right? Because not every country will transition, not every country will transition fast. Um, but for the vast majority of petrostates, that revenue stream is going away. And given the pathologies in governance, the pathologies in, in economics that many of these states have, I genuinely worry about their ability to adapt to that change. You know, they need, they need to diversify. And the short-term political incentives just aren't there. And so we could be looking at a, a world where, you know, a lot of petrostates are much worse off in 50 years than they are today and don't really have a good way to get out of that kind of poverty trap. Do you think that the United States, as, as a major exporter in, in oil and gas, do you think we are doing enough to diversify our own energy needs? And do, and then do you see in the future a place where the United States could fill that gap where petrostates, if they haven't adapted, that the United States can fill that energy void for renewables or other, or, or other sources of energy? So for the US, this is a really tricky policy question because in some ways, what America needs in terms of energy security and what America needs in terms of climate issues are actually opposed. 
we would be in a better situation today if energy producers, fracking companies felt more secure about the future of their markets. Because if they did that, they'd be more willing to invest in capital, they'd be more willing to pump more, we'd be in a better position for the next 10 years. But if the government sort of pushes that and promotes it and does that too much, then we might not end up shifting towards renewables in the long term. So I think for policymakers, there's a really tricky dilemma. Um, Now, I'm a security person, so I come down more on the side of, you know, I, I would sort of like people not to freeze to death over the next few years. But equally, you know, if we haven't started to make more of a transition to green technologies in the next 20, 30 years, it is a real problem. It becomes a much bigger security problem at that point. And so I don't have a good answer here other than to say I I do not envy the Biden administration trying to make these choices right now. And I wouldn't blame them at all if they ended up falling back more onto the fossil fuel infrastructure to try and mitigate the effects of the current crisis. Does sound like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where supporting one thing downplays the other side and you know, supporting fracking, you have the environmentalists rightfully enraged that we're not putting enough money into solar panels and things like that. It's a short-term versus long-term situation. Yeah, it's, that's a very difficult question. I think that, you know, the, the important thing, though, I think, is to realize that, that both sides are sort of offering solutions that don't exist, right? America is going to transition off fossil fuels at some point, for the most part. And equally, the renewable technologies just aren't there today, not at the scale we need them. So it's going to be messy. It's going to be some kind of middle road. And, you know, I I hope policymakers make the best of it. All right. Well, on that positive note, (laughs) Dr. Ashford, thank you so much. I do want to ask you one last question. If there is one big takeaway or one conclusion that you want our listeners to come away, knowing from this podcast and uh, from your book, to maybe motivate them to go buy it and and read it in its entirety, what would that conclusion be? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I, I guess given that we're talking about energy transition and looking to the future, you know, my 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 one big takeaway would be we need to think about how to not make the same mistakes again. Because this book is basically all about the ways in which oil has given a small subset of state unfounded power, lots of influence, lots of military capabilities. So how do we avoid replicating those mistakes in future? Because, you know, the green transition is not going to require, is not going to be without resources, right? We're going to need lots more copper. We're going to need lots more lithium. How do we avoid recreating this in the future? That, I think, is something that policymakers should be thinking about a lot more. So I guess that's my big takeaway, at least today. Um, we'll, we'll see what the coming months bring. All right. Well, I really appreciate it for our listeners. That's Dr. Emma Ashford. Her book is titled Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. It's a really fascinating read and really challenged uh, my viewing on petrostates and the way that we frame oil and energy security in the international sphere. So uh, thank you all for listening. Dr. Ashford, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for, for having me and for reading the book, honestly. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network for conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. 
Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 